um, you don't often remember the words of the principal at your daughter's kindergarten graduation. You with me? Right? <laughs> you don't often remember what the principal says at your daughter's kindergarten graduation. It doesn't usually seem to be all that profound. In fact, you just wish you could get to that point where you could see your cute little daughter, get the picture, and get out of there, right? But, but the words of my daughter's... Now, my daughter is 30. The words of my daughter's principal at her preschool, at her kindergarten graduation, still resonate in my head. It was at Taze Valley Christian School, just outside Charleston, West Virginia, and the principal was recalling a conversation that he had had with someone who was confused and concerned about this man, the principal's commitment to a Christian school education. They asked him, aren't you concerned about when those kids hit the real world? Right? Some of you have heard, had those conversations. It was as if going to a Christian school was somehow sheltering children from a world that they would inevitably face and be in danger from. And I think these words still resonate because it would be a question that Deneen and I would get for years as we chose to homeschool our kids as well as utilize Christian schools for our kids' education. They would say time and time again, aren't you scared about when your kids get to the real world? Well, the answer that that Christian school principal gave at that graduation are words that we have shared many times and I think are a great bridge, actually, to our text this morning. That principal affirmed us as parents that an education in the things of God, a heavenly world, are far, listen, far more real and substantial than an exposure to the earthly world that is often perceived as real. That the true real world is a world that we may not be able to see, but is far more real than the world that we do see. Now, I I don't share those words this morning to promote Christian school education or homeschooling, but to bring to bear that what we perceive to be the real world might actually be much less than the greater spiritual world that supersedes it. A truth that we see clearly today in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. And a truth that, listen, this is the reason I share it, that should bring us a great deal of hope today. So if you have your Bibles, uh, I would ask you to turn to 2 Kings 6, verses 8 through 23. There's now Bibles in your pews, if you'd like, or on your electronic devices, however it is that you get to God's Word, 2 Kings Chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. As you turn there, I hope that you remember (laughs) that we started the calendar year in 2021 with a study of the life of Elisha, right? That that seems like now eons ago. Uh, It was entitled, A Messenger of Hope. And while we took a little break for Easter, right, and had a great sermon last week from Pastor Matthew, we returned to that series this week that will take us all the way till May 16th. And if you remember that we were in that series called A Messenger of Hope, The Study of Elisha, I also hope you remember that as we have studied the life of Elisha, uh, as well as our mini-study during Easter, that we have focused on the hope of Revelation 21, verse 5. In fact, many of you, I know, 
have memorized it. You say it every day. It's on your mirror. It's on your refrigerator. You say it over and over again. But because I love you, I've put it on the screen, right? Uh, in the reality that maybe, maybe you need some help this morning. So let's say it together. Revelation 21.5. Deb referenced it as we sang that great song uh, prior to the message. Revelation 21.5 says what? And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. We have seen that Elisha's life and calling was a unique one, but one that was indeed making something new. That after Elijah had spent so much time as a prophet warning God's people of the judgment that was coming as far as exile, that Elisha followed him and proclaimed that though exile was coming, that it was God's intent to restore Israel, that God was committed to making all things new. We recognize that in Elisha's life, and hopefully over this time, you have recognized it in your own life as well. We've seen that in many different ways, and remarkable ways in Elisha's life, and this morning is yet another example of hope from the life of Elisha. Hope that God is at work to make all things new. And by the way, this is my personal favorite Elisha story today. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 8 through 23. I'm going to read the whole story. We'll go back and, and take it in three chunks, all right? 2 Kings chapter 6, starting at verse 8. This is the word of God. Once, when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, oh, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servants of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and the chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, now open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? We'll set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. 
So he prepared for them a great feast, and when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. Listen, and the Syrians did not come again on raids into the land of Israel. May God help us in the understanding of his word. Here's point one this morning. You ready? Point one is this. God is at work in the world we see. God is at work in the world we see. Uh, Verses 8 through 14. Real quickly, look how our story begins. The king of Syria, who, by the way, is not a good guy, right, is teasing with Israel a bit. He's sending small warring factions into Israel to let them know that that Syria is there and that Syria is a threat to their very existence. But, listen, every time that the armies of Syria set up an attack on where their intel tells them that Israel will be, Israel doesn't show up. It doesn't happen once. It doesn't happen twice. It happens several times. And we are told it is because the man of God, spoiler alert, that's Elisha, receives a prophetic notion of where Syria will be. So God tells him where Syria will be, and he goes and warns the king of Israel to go another way, right? So they keep avoiding these conflicts. Till, in verse 11, we are told that the king of Syria is greatly troubled. That's Hebrew for really ticked off. And so because he is so convinced that there is a mole in his camp, right? Someone in his camp is, is a traitor that they keep you know, telling Israel where they're going to be. So he's so convinced that he gathers them all together in a mass meeting and he, he's hoping for a confession. He calls them out. Now, which one of you is the mole, right? To which one of his most trusted servants says, it's none of us, Lord. It's none of us. It's the prophet Elisha. In fact, this is a disturbing thought. You ready for this? He hears what you say in your bedroom, right? So like everything you say and think and know, this guy somehow knows. So the king of Syria sends out a team to find Elisha. In so doing, they discover he's in the small town of Dothan. And so he sends oh, just a few guys, right? Did you, did, you, did you read just a few guys? No, no, listen, he sends lots of chariots. He sends lots of horses. And it says he sends a great army. One, one, one guy, right? Sends a great army to go surround Dothan so that they might capture Elisha. A couple of thoughts here. God does employ boots on the ground. He is at work in the world we see. Uh, this is obvious in the pages of Scripture, from, from Noah to the Apostle Paul, right? We, we can see evidence throughout the pages of the Bible of those God has called to be instruments of his charge in the world that we see. In this case, it is Elisha. God reveals to him what is going to happen, and he rescues the Israelite army from certain defeat. God does put boots on the ground in the world that we see with our physical eyes that operate for his good. Here's a revolutionary thought. You ready for this? God is still doing that. God is still doing that. Though we are not given prophetic insights, right? God still employs boots on the ground as ambassadors for change in your world and in mine. You have people in your personal lives that have been life changers for you, who have shown up as called by God in just the right moments to be his voice in his hands, right? Think about them. When you've been in crisis and someone has come with care and compassion, when you've been spiritually hungry and someone has come with a good word from the scriptures, that person even who has 
had the boldness to share the gospel with you that you might become a believer in Christ. There are people, boots on the ground, the world that we see that God has employed for our good. Likewise, many of you have had the privilege of being that ambassador. He's called you out to bring about change in someone else's life or even in the life of this church. As I look out among you, many, 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 many of you have been that to Covenant Church and to one another. God does do that. I love the words of of Matthew West in his song, Do Something. You might be familiar with it. I woke up this morning, he says, saw a world full of trouble. (laughs) Have you ever had that feeling? And he he asked, how do we ever get so far down? And how's it ever going to turn around? So I turned my eyes to heaven, says Matthew West. And I thought, God, why don't you do something? Well, I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty, children sold into slavery. The thought disgusted me. So I shook my fist in heaven and said, God, why don't you do something? And he said, I did. You want to sing with me now? I created you. That's right. Right? If not us, then who? If not now, then when? You know, that, that, that song. You, you obviously don't list enough to Caleb, right? All right. God is at work in the world we see. And let me lean in a bit here. He is marvelously gifted. You, to make a difference, even as he did Elisha. But let's be honest, that whole thought can be a bit scary. That thought can be a bit intimidating. So let's see the second part of this story as well, because not only is God at work in the world we see, God is at work from a world that we often cannot see. Did you hear it in our text, verses 15 through 17? Back to the story. The Syrian army has gathered around the city of Dothan, more specifically around his small house that Elisha and his servant are staying in. As the sun rises, the servant of Elisha, I don't know, in my mind, he opens the door to go stoke the fire, to make some coffee, to maybe just to go out and get a breath of fresh air. And he looks, and there's an army. There's an arm, there's a stinking army surrounding not just the house, but the city, right? So I, I'm assuming the house is raised, and he can see all of these horsemen, all these chariots, and he's going, ooh, dang, they're, they're not on our team. Like, this is a problem. But, but I love his response, right? He, he quickly goes back in, and he doesn't go, Elisha, we're dead men. That's not what he says. He says, alas, my servant, my lord, what will we do? I, I love his faith. Did you hear his faith? Right? Like, this is Elisha. Like, I've watched him, like, raise dead people to life and heal people of life. I mean, I've seen him do remarkable. Like, he's got to have a plan, right? So, like, Elisha, what will we do? That was his question. He probably wasn't all that pleased with the answer. Elisha looks at him and says, first of all, this, don't be afraid. Yeah, Right? There's a stinking Syrian army surrounding us. I'm not supposed to be afraid. And then he says this. Those that are for us are greater than those who are against us. At that point, the messenger probably looked at Elisha and goes, okay, let's take roll here. One, two. 
looks out the window, goes, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, right? The auctioneer thing going, he had everything rolled. He's like, again, Elisha, one, two, versus all of them. How in the world are there more of us than of them? To which Elisha must have smiled, and he prayed this simple prayer. Oh, Lord, would you open his eyes? And then he lovingly escorted him back to that same window or out that same door. And when he did, he saw that the mountains were full of chariots and horses on fire. Listen, if this guy was there when Elijah was taken up, Elijah, right, was taken up into heaven, and there was a chariot of fire that did it, and it showed him the reality of the power of God, at this moment, he's going, oh, them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I, I see them. Sometimes we look at the world around us, the things that we see with our eyes, and it seems overwhelming. We might even take role sometimes and think, one, <laughs> two, maybe three or four in your home, and the rest of the world seems to be against us. May it be, may it be that we would pray this prayer. Oh, Lord, open our eyes. Open our eyes that we might see. I, I, I can't imagine when, when, when Elisha's messenger, when his servant saw that. I mean, my, uh, yes, right? I, mean, I, I don't know what it was. High fives, chest bumps. I don't know. I'm sure what, what, what it is. But there is this enthusiasm and excitement and this comfort like, we're going to win this one. Again, we're going to win this one. But... I also know that I stand before good Presbyterians this morning. And you ask yourself the question, are we allowed to believe like that still happens? That, that there's, like, there's angels here? Like this morning? There, there's a spiritual world in my life that I can't see that surrounds me? Let me invite you to be biblical this morning, right? You ready? Are there really angels? Well, Abraham was visited by angels. Jacob wrestled with an angel. The Israelites were led by an angel through the desert. Gideon was instructed by an angel. David was disciplined by an angel. The armies of Assyria were eventually destroyed by an angel. Elijah was fed by an angel. Zechariah, I love this one, if you remember when we studied Zechariah, tells us that angels patrol the earth like secret agents from heaven. And you go, well, that's the Old Testament. Isn't that Old Testament angel stuff? Well, angels announced our Lord's birth to Mary, to Joseph, and to the shepherds, pretty profoundly, by the way. Angels comforted Jesus when he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Angels strengthened Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane during his suffering. Angels gathered in hushed amazement before the cross and waited should he have beckoned them to rescue him. And angels announced his resurrection. Angels dressed in white reminded the disciples at our Lord's ascension of his second coming. And you say, well, that's like Jesus stuff. 
Okay, well, angels opened prison doors to free the disciples. An angel directed Philip to a new place of ministry. An angel directed Cornelius to send for Peter as the gospel was given to the Gentiles. The apostle Paul was strengthened by an angel during a turbulent storm at sea. And we learn in the book of Revelation, this is awesome, that the angels of God congregate in vast multitudes around the throne of God for endless praise and worship and will accompany him when he returns. So let's think biblically. Is there a supernatural world? Yeah, there is. My favorite, actually, is found in the psalm. Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. It says this, For he, God, will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. Listen, nowhere. I've, I read the whole Bible this week. Well, not really. But I, I, I've been through it a couple times, right? And, and the reality is I find it nowhere that it says, Oh, at this moment is when the angels stop showing up. In fact, I find that the angels have yet to do their best work. And they're working in our lives today. Charles Spurgeon, who wasn't a Presbyterian, but he was a good, conservative, reformed Baptist who didn't raise his hands when he worshipped. Just trying to get you to relate a little bit, right? Spurgeon said this. I I do not know how to explain it. I cannot tell how it is. But I believe angels have a great deal to do with the business of this world. Yeah, Spurgeon said it. I believe it. The Bible says it. We all believe it. The reality of angels is a study that is worth our time, not this morning in its fullness, but let it suffice to say, listen, that we cannot ignore them in the Scriptures. And we dare not ignore them in our lives. And may we not sell God short with a discussion of a simple guardian angel when he has deployed a myriad of angels for every one of us. And may we pray for one another that God would open our eyes to know of a real, real world that he provides for us today as his people. And that we might see and see again like the messenger did that day that there are many more of us than them. With me? I want you to get that. This morning, that is our hope This is the message that Elisha had, not just for the servant that day, but but it would resonate throughout history. Remember, this Second Kings book is written by a historian for a people who are now exiled by the Assyrian government. They're living apart from their country. Apart. Apart from their country. I was going to catch it if you didn't, right? There you go. So they were living apart. Apart from their people, right? So they're living in exile, right? Why does he say this story? He's saying, listen, open your eyes. Open your eyes. Even in exile, the angels are there. (laughs) But there's more to the story we haven't covered, right? So before we close the book on this story... I I want us to pause and ask a really good question. Those of you who are attentive and in tune may have asked this question. 
If Elisha could see and know every move of the Syrian army up to this point, you know where I'm going? Would he not have known that they were coming to Dothan <laughs> and like gotten out of town? Like, he's a prophet. Like, he, three, four, five times he told the whole nation of Israel, hey, they're coming at such and such a time, such and such a place, you shouldn't go there. Wouldn't he have known that about Dothan? Is, anybody else have that concerning thought? Is it just me? I mean, did he lose his prophetic gift? Was he sleeping too soundly? Did the Syrian king become smarter than God all of a sudden? Did, did God forget to mention this to him? Listen, the reason I ask the question, because it's a good question, because similarly, you may be sitting here this morning and asking, man, this guy seems really confident that there's angels all around, but I, I have some things in my life that he has not interrupted, and I'm, I'm really curious where those angels have been. Does God not see me? Does God not care for me? Have the angels of God not been commissioned to protect me? These are great questions. <laughs> Listen, I, I, I'll be vulnerable this morning. I try to be often. Your pastor had a particularly hard ending to his week this week. <laughs> and I'm working on this sermon. <laughs> And I'm praying like crazy. God, open my eyes. I, I, I want to see that there's more than me sitting in my study. I'm not going to answer all your questions this morning because all of mine aren't always answered. But I think the conclusion of this story helps us in those moments. So real quick, let's look. God is at work in the world we see. He's at work in a world that we often cannot see. And the reason he is at work is because he wants to make us more like him. God uses the ambassadors of this world as well as the angels of the world we cannot see to make us more like him. Quick reminder that I say pretty often from this pulpit, God does not exist for you. <laughs> That's a... It's a world changer for some of you, right? God does not exist for me, for us. He, he does exist so that we might bring him glory. In, in other words, it, it's not about us, but it's all about him. So hear this, things don't always work out the way we want them. Because we're not God. And he is. But also, be encouraged in hearing that his ways are greater than our ways. So when he places hard stuff in our lives, which he does, he is refining us in ways to make us more dependent on him that we might ultimately live in ways that reflect him. Let me explain by the end of this story. It's kind of strange, right? The Syrian army comes against Elisha. And the servant in Elisha prays that God will blind them. Remember, he just prayed, God opened this guy's eyes. But then when the army comes, he says, will you shut all theirs? Will you blind them? And God does exactly that. The entire army is blinded. Then Elisha goes out to them. I love this 
this in my head, right? Elisha goes out to them in what must be a crazy confusion. Imagine, he, he, he says to all these blind guys now, the Syrian army kind of gathered in going, can't see, can't see. He says, oh, no worries, I got you. But let me tell you, you're in the wrong place looking for the wrong guy. But lucky for you, I'm here. And I'll lead you. So follow me. We're blind. Oh, yeah, well, just hang on to each other. I got the lead, and we're gone. And he leads them, all, whatever, hundreds of them, leads them to Samaria, which is the capital of the nation of Israel. And he alerts the king, right? I've got something you might like to see. And so he pulls them all in, and he has them surrounded. And then when he has them all surrounded in the capital city of Samaria, in Israel, he says, okay, God, open their eyes. Surprise! <laughs> you're, you're captive. That's <laughs> just crazy, right? But that happened. And then I let the king of Israel stand there and he's going, should we kill him? And Elisha goes, no, don't kill him. You ready for this? You know what Elisha says? Did you catch it? From a party. Feed him. And then kill him. No, he didn't say that. Send them home. What? Was it natural for Israel to let these guys have a party and go home? No, this is not what you would expect in the story, right? Much like you wouldn't expect a a father who has been taken advantage of by his younger son to welcome that son back home and throw him a party. That story sound familiar? It's called the prodigal son. Much like, I'll just get personal, you wouldn't expect a God who has been betrayed time and time again by me to sacrifice his own son so that I might not only live, but live forever in a party with him. So, so why did God allow the Syrian army to surround Elisha at Dothan? So that Elisha and his servant might experience God and become more like him. Why does God allow hard things in our lives? So that we might experience God and become more like him. Imagine being one of those Syrian soldiers. You go home after a hard day. Hi, honey. Your wife goes, how was your day? Ah, run of the mill. We surrounded Dothan. We're going to take this guy down. All of a sudden, I lost my eyesight. In fact, we all did. Then this guy led us to Samaria. When we miraculously could see again, we were in captivity. And we're thinking we're all going to die. But then they throw us a party and tell us to go home. How was your day? I mean, imagine going to the king the next day, showing up for work. So what happened yesterday? Oh, man, you wouldn't believe what happened yesterday. And, and this is the same king who sent, just a few chapters ago, it's been a long time since we studied it, but sent the general of his army who had leprosy to where? To Samaria, to a guy by the name of Elisha, that he might be healed. And he came back, and he was. Syria, at this point, is going... There is something going on in Israel that we can't see. Like the real world, 
There's something else going on. This story has amazing application. In the supernatural power of God in a world that we cannot see, I want you to get that. I want you to receive hope from that. There are angels that surround you. We should leave here today with hope in that reality and a prayer on our lips that our eyes would be open. But don't leave it there because the gospel is in the story. And God doesn't leave it there. Rather, he tells a much more meaningful story. The story of the supernatural turns to a story of grace. And as God spared Elisha, Elisha spares the Syrian army. As God reveals to Elisha his absolute dependence on God, he teaches Elisha and his servant to be like God. And so it should be for us. Oh God, open our eyes not only to the heavens, but to who you are and who you have called us to be. We must pray that God would open our eyes to show us that he is the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the Ancient of Days. But that as we see him, we might be more like him. Listen, if all you can see is the world in front of your eyes, the world that may want to call itself the real world, it's going to teach you to live for yourself, right? It's going to teach you to be selfish. It's going to insist that you take vengeance on your own. Maybe we've seen that a couple times. And you will miss the power of God. And maybe even more importantly so, you'll miss the grace of God. But if you pray that God open your eyes to see a supernatural world, you will experience the crazy reality of a supernatural God, even in the hardest of places, a reality that will change you and make you more like the God that has shown you grace. (laughs) Billy Graham tells the story of a celebrated Philadelphia neurologist. His name was Dr. S.W. Mitchell. He was a nominal believer in the Lord. One night as he was settling down into bed for the night, an odd thing happened. There's a knock at his door. Oh, so he gets out of bed, right? Goes tromping down the stairs, opens the door, and to his surprise, there is a small girl there who's poorly dressed, especially for the cold winter night that it was. And this little girl had a message. She said, my mother is deathly ill, and I need somebody to help. Would you come? So S.W. Mitchell grabs his winter coat and enters into the blistery night, follows this little girl back to her very humble house in which he finds her mother deathly ill with pneumonia. So he attends to her and he treats her and sets up a plan for her with regard to her medical treatment. And at the end of that, as he's kind of settling her in, he goes, you should be very proud of your daughter. She was extremely brave, extremely courageous to come out on a night like tonight to find me. I I really don't know how she did it. To which that woman looked at him and said, my only daughter died a month ago 
her coat, her shoes are in that closet. S.W. Mitchell made his way to the closet, opened the door, and there hanging in that closet with no girl to be seen was the very coat that she was wearing at his door, the very shoes that were on her feet. Do you think S.W. Mitchell ever looked at his medical practice the same again? No. Listen, I I can't explain that. But it's true. And it didn't happen just to save that woman from her pneumonia. I think more importantly, it happened to save S.W. Mitchell from his sin. May our eyes be opened to the real, real world. And may we be forever changed. I am so grateful that that Christian school principal who challenged me years ago to see the real world was boots on the ground. So that I might face life knowing that an army fights for me, but even more, that I might be in the process of being made new, being made more like Jesus and for his glory.